Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 246 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Mark Dewidziak. He's been a theater, film, and television critic for more than 35 years, and his many books include the horror novel Grave Secrets and the nonfiction books The Columbo File, A Casebook, and The Night Stalker Companion. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in the Twilight Zone. And now, here's our interview with Mark DeWitziak. All right, so we're here with Mark DeWitziak. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Okay, so your new book is called Everything I Need to Know I Learned in the Twilight Zone. So how'd this book come about? Well, there's a lot of answers to that. Uh, the, the the long answer probably is to say that uh, this book was about uh, 37 years in the making. <laughs> uh, that's not, you know, uh, literally true, but it is true that in uh, somewhere around 1980, uh, it was the, the dream of my youth to write a history of the Twilight Zone. And uh, at the time, I was the uh, arts editor of the Kingsport Times News. And if you know where Kingsport is, that is a little town in Upper East Tennessee, very very near the border between Virginia and Tennessee. And I was working at a 50,000 circulation newspaper. And um, I was, uh, that was, uh, the Twilight Zone was my favorite show, was my favorite series of all time. It still is. And uh, I thought, well, wouldn't it be great to write a history of the show? So I, I started collecting interviews back then. And uh, as you might imagine, Kingsport, Tennessee was not the best place to use as a base of operations for researching the Twilight Zone. So, you know, I, I got a few. A few came my way. Donna Douglas actually came into town while during this time period to do a commercial, you know, and I, and I ran over to the commercial site and, and, and interviewed her. So I was collecting string and you know, as I was collecting string, I had a, a experience not for the first or last time in my life that I walked into a bookstore and lo and behold, there was Mark Scott Secrees, The Twilight Zone Companion. And uh, I uh, greedily went through it and uh, realized I couldn't even be angry about Mark beating me to the punch because he had done such a superb job. Uh, that book is a landmark book in a lot of ways. It's, it's not just a landmark book in terms of um, research on the Twilight Zone. It's actually a landmark book in for books about TV series, setting the bar for really intense, in-depth looks into how a series was put together. So I immediately changed my target, and. I went to my second favorite series <laughs> and I wrote a history of the Columbo series with Peter Falk. And, you know, one thing led to another. And after about uh, 15, 16 books, um, this is, this is really the answer to your question <laughs> is that uh, about five years ago, uh, I decided to introduce my daughter to the twilight. Zone. she was about 15 years old at the time. She'd seen an, a tremendous amount of classic television. She'd seen uh, Columbo, of course. She'd seen all of the Night Stalker episodes. Uh, she had seen the Dick Van Dyke show, the Andy Griffith show, and she'd seen all of Night Gallery. So she was aware of who Rod Serling was. And uh, when she was 15, I said, okay, it's time for the real stuff. It's time for your, your postgraduate work. It's time for you to learn what the Twilight Zone is all about. You're ready. And uh, we decided to do a forced march through the Twilight Zone. And we started with the pilot episode. We started with uh, Earl Holloman in, in Where Is Everybody? And then we decided to work our way through in direct order. And when we hit about the third or fourth episode, we got to the episode Escape Clause with David Wayne, where the, he sells his soul to the devil for immortality. and anybody with any familiarity with the twilight zone knows this is not going to end well for David Wayne. Um, and it doesn't. And when the episode was over, I jokingly turned to my daughter and wagged a finger at her and said, well, just let that be a lesson to you. Never, never sign a contract without knowing everything that's in it. You know, 
and you know it was it was meant as a as a joke and we we both giggled and then i thought about it for a second and i turned back to her and said no really <laughs> read contracts know what's in them know what the ramifications of them are i started thinking about the the housing crisis and all these people who had signed contracts not knowing what the ramifications of those contracts would be and all the trouble it got us into so this became sort of a running gag with us. We'd get through a twilight zone. I turned to Becky and say, let that let be a lesson to you. And, you know, I'm a slow learner. So it took a few weeks before the penny dropped. And I realized, wait a minute, there's a book in this. There's a book in sort of extracting these morals and parables out of these episodes of the twilight zone uh, that, that, are, that are evident and there in every single one. So I, you know, I, just because I think it's a good idea doesn't mean anybody else thinks it's a good idea. So I, I ran it by my agent, and she happened to think it was a good idea. And then St. Martin's agreed with it, and now you're talking to me. How's that for a long-winded answer? <laughs> no, that was good. And I, I just want to read this list of thinkers that you reference in the book. I and mean, these are some of them. Baudelaire, George Bernard Shaw, Gandhi, Thomas Aquinas, Moliere, and St. Augustine. And I feel like it's not every book about a TV show that would have those sorts of references in it. Yes. You know, I, I, I was trying not to name drop, but yes, hmm. <laughs> um, it, it, it's true that, that um, the it sort of makes what you just said sort of makes a point, which I have always made about The Twilight Zone, which is I think one of the reasons it still has incredible resonance, Jay, is because the storytelling is eternal that Rod Serling understood something that great writers understand, which is that human nature doesn't change. Human nature remains the same. And if you comment on human nature and you make it accessible, it's going to be accessible 20 years later, 30 years later, 50 years later. It's why Shakespeare is still accessible. Shakespeare magnificently understands human nature it addresses human nature and the twilight zone is that kind of storytelling and uh it's one of the reasons that i think it continues to jump generationally i you know I, i've i've told this tale till it's gone stale but it's it's true that i teach two classes every semester at kent state university and if you're teaching correctly at all correctly you learn as much from your students as they learn from you. And uh, I, I often use them as sort of a testing ground. And one of the things that, and I write about this in the book, one of the things that um, breaks my heart is that I have seen, since I started teaching these classes every semester, two classes each semester, since 2009, I have seen things recede and disappear from the pop culture consciousness. And uh, um, there's still a few things, thank goodness, there are a few things that we still share and we still all know. Um, you know, on the movie side, you know, The Wizard of Oz. Everybody gets The Wizard of Oz sooner or later. You can use The Wizard of Oz reference. Star, Star Wars. Star Wars is a perfect example. You could say, the, uh, may the force be with you and, and have a pretty good shot at hitting most people in the room. Among black and white TV shows, there are only two shows that continue to jump that my students seem to still know. One is I Love Lucy. They still know Lucy. And Lucy is still used to sell things. You want to really look at when something still has <laughs> some pop culture juice. Look to see if they use it to sell things and merchandise things. So Lucy and The Twilight Zone are the only two shows that the majority of my students still know. It still gets reintroduced. And, you know, for the Twilight Zone, I think it's the fact that that storytelling holds up is that if you were watching the Twilight Zone on one of the two annual marathons on the Sci-Fi Channel and you come in or your parents say to you, hey, you know, you really ought to watch this thing. You really ought to take a look at this. You're going to be intrigued by it, even though it's in black and white and even though it's set in the the early 1960s, you're still going to be intrigued by this storytelling. It's still going to hook you. And so with my, I said to my students, you know, the, the gremlin on the wing, they know what that is. They got it. <laughs> and I think that that's, you know, one of the really interesting, the Twilight Zone does give you a teaching opportunity 
because of that. It gives you a, a chance to discuss this. And, I, and I've, heard, I've heard from teachers who say they, they use the Twilight Zone in the classroom. They use it to, to, uh, to teach and to, just to instill discussion among the students. And it gets them going in ways that other things don't. That's kind of that, that power of that enduring power of storytelling to teach a lesson or to teach a moral. And that's something that the Twilight Zone is very much in a very rich tradition of, of all of humankind. I mean, I don't want to get too grandiose about this, but it really is the, the pageant of humankind and human nature, what it, what it, what it addresses. How's that for highfalutin? Hmm. Well, right. And so tell us about Rod Serling, too. And how did he get to be the kind of person who was so concerned with morality? Well, that that I I I I think part of it he was born that way. I, I think you know there there's this is kind of the nurture nature uh, question, and uh, how much of this is inherited, or how much of this is environment, how much of this you know, and and I think with Rod it's both it's both, you know, and you know the the profound experience of his life is World War Two. The the he's he becomes a paratrooper. One of the most dangerous things to do. He becomes a paratrooper in the South Pacific, which is one of the most dangerous places to do it. And he saw a lot of carnage, of horrific experience. He comes back from the war psychologically and physically damaged. And he goes to college. He goes to Antioch and he goes to, to to college and he discovers writing and he discovers something which Eugene O'Neill talks about in, in his writing, which is that writing Eugene O'Neill had a had a an expression, writing myself sane. That, you know, um uh, the idea that writers are exorcists of their own demons. And Rod turns to writing as sort of a way of healing himself after the war. And I think it is in this process that his true consciousness uh what you're what you're asking about comes uh comes full full bodied into his his talent he, he meets the, the that consciousness meets the awareness of his talent and those things marry up and you see it and and the reason i say that i think this is the, the crucial period because the themes that rod talks about in the twilight zone are the same themes that he talks about in his early work in the early live dramas that he did, and then address it after the Twilight Zone. You see the same concern. There's the concern with racism and prejudice and bigotry that runs throughout all his work. There's the concern for the elderly and what we do with people who we've used up at the other end of their lives. That's a huge theme with Rod. There's, you know, an awareness of what we need to be, the tolerance we need, to survive as a people and as a, as a society and as a nation and as a planet. All of these things are evident in Rod's work right from the start. And you say that he tried to, he, he was always really interested in getting these morals across, but the, he ran into problems with the sponsors because they didn't want to touch anything controversial. And that's actually kind of why he went into this more fantasy science fiction direction for the Twilight Zone. Well, and again, you know, he, that was top loaded in there too. Is that as 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 a youngster, Rod read an awful lot of fantasy and horror. He he read Poe, you know, he read Lovecraft. He read he had really good influences, uh, basically, when he was a young man. So um, when the frustrations grew, I mean, he 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 becomes the one of the leading young lions of that golden age of the live television drama, which wasn't as golden as we like to think of it. You know, there's a lot of bad things done on live television and there was a lot of bad television. There was a lot of roller derby and wrestling back then. Um, you know, I, I think sometimes we tend to think of the 1950s television as, you know, our version of masterpiece theater or something. And it wasn't, <laughs> there are a lot of game shows, there was a lot of you know cheap the stuff done on the fly, and uh, but there were also some um, sublime moments, and also because 
movie stars were forbidden to work in television, television had to find a way to promote talent. And one of the things they, they did, which was very smart on their part, is they made stars of the writers. And they made writers like Patty Shayevsky and Rod Serling household names. By this week, another work by Patty Shayevsky. You were there for Patty Shayevsky. Now, you know, you showed up and you've got these wonderful performers, but a lot of them weren't stars yet. They were going to become stars. So, you know, Rod was one of the leading lights of that generation of writers. And he really, he, the, the two tentpole productions that he, he writes during this period um, are is Patterns and then Requiem for a Heavyweight for Playhouse 90. And by the time you get to around 1958, he's really growing extraordinarily frustrated with the rising power of the sponsors, the advertisers, the standards and practices people, all these people who look at his script and say, no, 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 you can't say that. That might offend our, uh, our stations in the South. No, you can't do that. That might offend the sponsor. Uh, no, you can't do that. Uh, the you can't do that argument became so um, so restrictive in what he was trying to do with these dr social dramas that he fled into the Twilight Zone. And it was a very, very smart move. There's an interview. You've probably seen it uh, right before the Twilight Zone premiered. He sat down for an interview with with Mike Wallace. And Wallace says, you know, you're doing this thing called the Twilight Zone. You know, does this mean you're done with serious writing? And Rod's got this grin on his face. <laughs> he said, he looks at, at Wallace and he pretty much says, yeah, you know, I think I'm done with you. you know, but he knows he's about to put one over on the network. And he, he can't really answer Wallace's question without betraying the trick that's about to be, be played, which is Rod's not going to change anything. All he's going to change is the genre. And he's, he, he's the first guy to kind of realize that if you put something in the trappings of fantasy or science fiction or horror or whatever you want to call the genre, uh, and the Twilight Zone is kind of its own genre, but if you dress it up in those, the sponsors won't care. All they're going to see is the aliens and the monsters and the spaceships and things like that. They're not going to see the message. Yeah, and Gene Ronberry's going to take this lesson from Rod. He, he admitted it. He said, you know, Rod taught him how to do this. You put it on a spaceship, send it out to the farthest regions of the galaxy, you can talk about whatever you want. You can talk about racism. You can talk about war. You can talk about prejudice. You can do whatever you, you, you want, and nobody's going to raise an eyebrow over it. And that's exactly what happened. He moves into the Twilight Zone, and he is addressing the exact same themes that he was in the live drama. And because it was the Twilight Zone, because it was fantasy, he got it a, a pretty much a free pass to, to, to write whatever he wanted to write. And it in, increased the metaphoric power of the storytelling by going into the Twilight Zone. He was now using what fantasy writers and horror writers have known forever, which is they are wonderful tools for metaphoric storytelling. They are wonderful tools for addressing the human condition in a way that's extraordinarily entertaining and gripping but yet is getting at a, 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 a much bigger point. Right. And so for the five years of the Twilight Zone, he writes 92 episodes, which is just a yes, incredible output. <laughs> he's a workaholic. I mean, you know, he's, he's your, your typical type A personality. Um, you know, he's, he's the showrunner. So I mean, he's, he is, he's the executive producer. He's the creator. Uh, he's the principal writer, and he is the uh, the on air host uh, narrator. So, I mean, he he worked tremendously hard on that. I you know uh, somewhere in the in the nineteen I got to know Ray Bradbury pretty well, and for a while I we were working on a on a book together that uh, I still have all of the tapes for somewhere. It's one of those many books that never got done. Um. But I remember him telling me that um, he would go by the Twilight Zone offices and just be horrified at how hard Rod was working, at how incredibly 
you know, it just had taken over his life. And he just, you know, and later on when he got his own series, when he got the Ray Bradbury Theater, first on HBO and then USA, and they asked him to do, uh, I think they wanted him to do something like 16 episodes a year. And he said, no, you don't. You want me to do 12. And they said, no, we want 16 or there's no series. And he said, well, it sure has been nice and hung up the phone. And they called back a little while later and said, we want you to do 12. And he said, there you go. You know, you want me to work for you and I won't do that. I'll play for you. And I, you know, I use this as a lesson in the book, as a guest lesson in the book. But he said the reason he, where he learned it was watching how hard Rod worked on the Twilight Zone. So, and he just said, you know, he never was going to put himself under that kind of a, a yoke. So, um, yes, I mean, it, it's, it's, it is an amazing moment, but it is also, uh, you know, it very, I think it very much became his life, uh, you know, and, and thankfully, you know, he found other writers, you know, who not only contributed mightily to the Twilight Zone, but contributed mightily to what the Twilight Zone was. There is a tendency to, I think, sometimes think of the Twilight Zone as a one-man show, and uh, that's nowhere near true. R- Rod is the principal voice, and he is the, certainly the person who shaped it, and he is the impresario. But, you know, uh, there are notes that are struck throughout the course of the Twilight Zone that are distinctly uh, Charles Beaumont or distinctly Richard Matheson, or distinctly George Clayton Johnson. So thankfully, he found some of the best of the best uh, people to contribute to this show. And uh, that's something which, you know, I, I, again, the quality shows, I mean, is, is that when he went and found writers to write for The Twilight Zone, you know, the first two he finds are, are Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont. Not too bad. Hmm. Not too shabby. I wanted to ask you about Richard Matheson because there's a photo in the book of you with him. And I was just wondering how well yeah. you knew him or what sort of experiences you had. I, I couldn't resist that. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it is a bit of a, a self-conscious touch, I guess. But I, I couldn't resist that. I, I, I love that picture uh, of the two of us because it's my favorite picture of the two of us. And um, I, I got to know Richard uh, when um, I... Uh, was researching my Night Stalker book. Uh, I had done the Columbo book and a, and a small publisher uh, in New York had approached me and said that they love my Columbo book. And have you ever considered doing um, uh, the same type of book on the Night Stalker? And I said, I love the Night Stalker. I said, you know, I, I just didn't know that there was a publisher crazy enough to publish such a book. And he said, well, I'm crazy enough to publish it. So I said, I'll, I'll do the book. And I got to know Richard in the writing of that book. And then in the um, writing of the, uh, the revised version, which was called the Night Stalker Companion. And the conversations we had on that book led to more conversations, which led to more conversations. And uh, a press called Gauntlet Press, uh, a few years after, wanted to publish his three Kolchak scripts, The Night Stalker, The Night Strangler, and then the unfilmed The Night Killers, which was, was to be the third movie, but it was never filmed, which he had written uh, with William F. Nolan. And, um, you know, they, they, so Richard asked me to edit that volume and write uh, the connecting essays and introductions that would go in the book. And when Richard Matheson asked you to collaborate with him, you don't say no. So uh, I understood that this was, you know, one of these great gifts that the universe is going to give you, you know, and Richard was so pleased with the way that book came out that I edited a second uh, volume of his work, all his vampire stories in a book called Bloodlines, which I actually like. I, I, that's one of my favorite uh, of all the books. I think that's a wonderful book. Um, and, and Richard was very soft spoken, very self-effacing. Richard was no way would ever brag on himself or anything. And I actually came up with the idea of bloodline. And this is Richard. This, this story is typical Richard. I I called him up and said, listen, I got an idea. Why don't we collect all your vampire stories and put them into one book and I'll edit the book. And uh, he said, "Uh, that's not that much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there is. (laughs) I said, you know, 
and I said, not only is there a lot there, it's important stuff. You know, I said, yeah, there's, I am legend. There's, you know, which, which we could put in the book because it's a short enough novel. There's, you know, your, your script for Dracula that you wrote for Dan Curtis. And now we can show the world, the original script, the full three hour version, instead of what ended up on the air, which was, yeah, hacked down to two hours. Uh, there are the short stories like Blood Sun and No Such Thing as a Vampire and The Funeral. And I say, you know, this is your your name is on three of the most important vampire stories of all time. You know, the adaptation of Dracula, I Am Legend, and and the Night Stalker. And you know, he just wasn't convinced. He's just like, well, I don't know. I don't think. I don't know. You know. Well, you know, a couple of days later, he called me back and said, "Listen, I was poking around the garage." And I found uh, my the, the script for uh, I Am Legend, the screenplay. And I said, what screenplay? <laughs> he said, the screenplay I wrote for Hammer Horror Films. I said, what screenplay you wrote for Hammer Horror Films? <laughs> he said, well, you know, I, I wrote a script. They asked me to write a script. I went to London. and uh, they, 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 they had me uh, stay in London, and I wrote this, this. It never got done. The censor wouldn't pass it. Uh, and I've got the letter from the censor. I said, well, we've got a book. <laughs> I said, I said, we've got. So that script for his uh, version of I Am Legend, his vision of what I Am Legend should be uh, on the screen, went in with the novel and everything else. So that's a very rich collection, but it also speaks to, you know, the type of person Richard was, you know. And then I, we, 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 I worked on a third book with him. Uh, which uh, another uh, editing job for him. So we, you know, uh, it was a, yeah, you know, it was again, it was one of the great gifts of the universe was to be able to get to know uh, Richard Matheson. I also wanted to ask you, speaking of Richard Matheson, I was wondering, you know, um, you mentioned everyone knows the gremlin on the wing from his episode Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. I was just wondering if you ever talked with him about that episode. Oh, yes, we did. Um, you know, we talked about a lot about the Twilight Zone. You know, one of the things that um, I, 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 I really wanted to know was if he'd ever seen the wonderful episode of, of Third Rock from the Sun, where William Shatner was the guest star as the, the big giant head. And he gets off. They, they have to go meet him. His, his plane has been routed in the wrong direction. And, you know, he, he is their superior, they're aliens, and he is their superior. And, of course, John Lithgow, uh, ha- Lithgow had uh, starred in the remake of Nightmare at 20,000 Feet in the Twilight Zone movie. So um, in the episode, in, in, in the episode, uh, Shatner comes off the plane and Lithgow goes up to greet him and says, how is the flight? <laughs> and Shatner says, <laughs> Shatner says, it was fine, but you know, halfway through, I thought I saw something out on the wing. <laughs> and Lithgow looks at him and says, the same thing happened to me. <laughs> now, um, it's a lovely reference. It's a lovely, <laughs> you know, moment and reference where you have the, these two guys, you know, who cross in the Twilight Zone. And uh, I asked, I, you know, I, I really wanted to know whether he'd ever see, he had, I mean, he was so delighted with that, with the knowledge of that moment uh, in Third Rock. And it, it does kind of speak also to the resonance of that episode, that here it shows up in the sitcom so many years later. And it's a joke that the, the assumption is everybody will get the joke. Everybody will be in on the joke. Um you know, but he was he was very pleased with with Nightmare Twenty Thousand Feet. I, I think if you had asked, well, I did. If you had asked him which episodes he thinks came out the best, he he was he was everything except the very end of the Invaders. You know, he he did not like the way the the spacemen looked in the Invaders, uh, but he liked everything else. He adored the, how the, the episode was done and Agnes Moorhead's performance. You know, so he gave very very high marks to uh steal the lee marvin episode uh and the invaders and and certain and, and nick of time and certainly nightmare at twenty thousand feet so that's uh that's not a bad grouping of episodes yeah well so the um the lesson that you draw from nightmare at twenty thousand feet is when nobody else believes in you keep believing in yourself 
Yeah. And I confess I'm a little bit uneasy with uh, the idea that if everyone, if you're seeing monsters that nobody else can see, you should believe in, you know, you should keep believing in them. I wonder if maybe you shouldn't, uh, that maybe you. Well, if he doesn't, the plane crashes. <laughs> if, if you're right, then the plane crashes. <laughs> you know, the, the notion is, is not, again, that the gremlin is metaphorical. The gremlin is real. The gremlin is, and it's a test of belief is whether he, he, he even wonders whether he's going crazy, but he's not. The gremlin's real. And it's a point of, of believing in yourself. The power of believing in yourself saves the plane and ultimately saves him. Um, you know, we're not all going to get the idea of the fantasy aspect of it is metaphoric. Uh, but I think the, the great lesson to sort of come through with this is everybody assumes this is just a manifestation of his illness. And he believes he's cured at the beginning of the episode. And he has to come to the, the point of believing in himself, believing in himself enough that he's going to put his life on the line for the, to save the, everybody else on the plane. And at the end, if you notice when they, they're, 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 they're taking him off on the stretcher, she says to his wife, says to him, everything's going to be all right, assuming he's crazy, that this is a relapse. And he smiles. There's a, there's a wonderful smile on his face. And he says, I know. And we don't, he doesn't know that his story is ever going to be corroborated. You know, you have that wonderful pullback shot at that point where it shows the damage on the wing. It says, you know, it sort of says to you, there's going to be corroboration for what he was saying. Um, the rest of the world is going to understand what he already understands. And the only thing that's important is that he understands it, is that he has this moment of self-belief. And it delivers him that it, it delivers that wonderful smile at the end of that episode. So, yeah, I but but I would also say, by the way, I mean, and, and this is where I, I do not have so much hubris that I believe that my interpretations of these episodes are the only interpretations of these episodes. Um, anything, you know, uh, that you sort of look at, which is metaphoric storytelling is open to interpretation. And, you know, like any good writer, I hope that what I've written with this book is not, is not designed to end discussion or be the be-all or end-all of discussion. You hope it begins discussion. Oh, and I mean, speaking of those sorts of different interpretations, you say in the book that you have this very contrarian take on the episode Time Enough at Last about the guy who breaks his glasses and can't read the books anymore. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I don't know that it's contrarian, but it's, it's certainly... Um, I, I, let me start by saying uh, I don't want anybody to think I, I, I don't like the episode because I think the episode is contains one of the greatest performances in the history of the Twilight Zone. It is beautifully shot, but it is also and it also is, is contains one of the most iconic images, if not the most iconic image of the Twilight Zone. However. You know, um, I, I do see it as a violation of the basic rules of the Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone always operated under the idea that you were rewarded or punished by what you brought into the Twilight Zone. Uh, if you brought in bigotry and prejudice and hatred and, 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 and greed into the Twilight Zone, you were going to take it in the shorts for that. You were going to get a, 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 a dose of cosmic justice up your ass for doing that. And on the contrary, if you brought in kindness and goodness and, and empathy and all of those wonderful things in our toolkit that we have been given, you would be rewarded for those things. You might have to go through a little bit of hell to get there, but you, you ultimately would be rewarded. Like the parents in Little Girl Lost, they love their daughter. You know, that episode is not going to end with the daughter forever being lost to them. They are going to get their little girl back because they are good people. And good people, they might get go astray like, you know, the trumpeter Joey that Jack Lugman plays in Passage for Trumpet. But they're going to come out all right because, you know, they essentially bring good things in with them. Well, time enough at last... What is Henry's crime? What is it exactly that he does wrong? He wants to read. He, our sympathies are with him. 
who are the villains of that episode? Who are the people who do bring in? Is there, you know, I think the most horrific moment in the episode is not the broken glasses. I think the most horrible, and it's one of the most horrific moments in all of the Twilight Zone, was when the true of the wife hands him the book of poetry and asks him to read the poetry. And he's delighted, the sheer delight in his face that now, at last, she shares and understands my love of reading and my love of literature. She gets it. And he opens the book and she has defaced every page of the book. That may be the cruelest and most horrific moment in, in any Twilight Zone. And so ultimately, at the end, when he gets hit with that bolt of cosmic irony, he's done nothing wrong. Now, I think there is a valid lesson to be gained from it, and it is the lesson that is on the chapter. So when I say, you know, maybe it's contrarian, maybe it is and maybe it isn't, because I believe the lesson to learn from that is a lesson that comes from what was one of my mother's favorite phrases when I was growing up. Uh, I was, you know, we were a family of five children. And frequently, when there were squabbles, one child would say to my mother, but that isn't fair. And my mother's enduring response to that was always, nobody said life was fair. And it's true. There's no denying the truth of it. So I guess there's no denying the truth of the broken glasses. But I didn't like it when my mother said it, and I don't like it when it happens in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's my take. And this came out of a discussion. where I was at dinner at uh, Dupar's restaurant in Studio City. Uh, we, we had actually, a group of us had gone out for, for, for dinner, and we wanted to keep the night going. So we went over to Dupar's for uh, coffee and some pie. And we were all sitting around, and, and, and Harlan Ellison was, was one of the people in the group with his wife, uh, Susan. Uh, Charles Edward Pogue, the screenwriter, was there. David Bean Cooley, the TV critic. And we were all sitting around, and we fell to talking about the Twilight Zone. And everybody started, went, oh, yeah, 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 time enough at last, the broken glasses, the broken glasses. And, you know, and I kept quiet. I just, you know, I just was silent. And, you know, uh, but after a while, the silence got a little loud. <laughs> And somebody said, um, well, what's that? Don't you like? And I said what I just said to you. I said, no, no, I like it enormously, but I do have a problem with it. And, and I said, look, you know, in the year since the Twilight Zone, language skills, reading has gone down. Books are in danger. Libraries are in danger. You know, did that episode, <laughs> yeah, you know, it makes it a crime that this guy wants to read. You know, and I, that's a pretty per terrible message, actually, if you, if you stop and think about it. And they all kind of stopped short. They all kind of went, but, and they had, <laughs> didn't really have an answer for it. Now, and again, so I, I, but I think it is the one, because it is the exception, because it is the one episode where a, a bad thing happens to a good person a really bad thing happens to a really good person. I think it is the one that is allowed to be the exception and that you can look at and say, yes, we can derive this message that bad things will happen to good people. And yeah, as my mom was fond of saying, nobody said life was fair. So you wouldn't be in favor of them making a remake of it where they made Henry Bemis a less sympathetic character. He's like, sorry, I don't have time to change the baby's diapers. I got to find out what happens at the end of this book. Well, it would be a violation of what Rod wrote. No, I wouldn't be in favor of that because that wasn't his intent for the character. Rod wrote what he wrote, you know. Um, I, I think, you know, that, uh, um, uh, it, it, you know, he, he wrote a very powerful episode. It's, a, it's an extraordinarily powerful episode. And it stands for what, for what he did. He wrote what he wrote, and it is what it is. Uh, uh, so, no, I would not be in favor of sort of violating his character or his intent. You know, that was, but I will say this, you know, um, you know, cause I, cause I kind of knew that that chapter was going to, uh, get people talking, you know, they, that they would see that, but I had to be honest. I had to be really, really honest about my responses to these episodes. And, you know, 
uh, and of course, you know, Anne Serling read the book uh, in advance to, in order to write the forward uh, for the book. And I, I asked Anne, uh, I said, you know, what do you think about that chapter? Um, and Anne looked at me and said, I agree <laughs> with you. <laughs> so, you know, her dad wrote the episode, <laughs> you, know, you know, so, you know, I mean, it, 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 I have to say, you know, it, it is, it is, I, I will not argue with the greatness of the episode, the performance, the power of it, the power of the payoff. I, I will not dispute that with anybody. I would say it's sort of in reverse. If this had been an episode of say night gallery and that the twilight zone, I'd have absolutely no problem with it. Where you know bad things often happen to good people, <laughs> happen all the time on Night Gallery, you know. But Twilight Zone, you know, it, it's sort of the ex- it's it's more the the exception. Um, uh, and I I do see this as like I said I I, I kind of like the idea of it being the exception to the rule because there is a very valid lesson to be drawn from it being the exception, and you know, and that exception is. Uh, it does come down to the fact that the universe does not always deal the cards fairly. I guess I also wanted to ask you about, you'd mentioned this episode of piano in the house where there's this malicious and mean spirited theater critic. And I was just curious yeah. as a professional critic, what you, what you thought of that uh, episode. <laughs> you know, well, well, first off, um, if I were talking about quality of, of episodes, I don't really think it's one of the better uh, twilight zone episodes. But that has nothing to do with the, the, the lead character being a critic. Um, I, and I do think that there's a very good lesson to be derived from that, which is, you know, there's a lot of anti-bullying messages in, in the Twilight Zone. The, the trend of it. Your bullies generally get paid off in full in the Twilight Zone. And that's certainly an episode. That, that character is a tremendously, you know, bullying person to everybody in his life, his, his wife, his friends. And he has arranged an evening of humiliation for them. And we all kind of know it's going to backfire, don't we? <laughs> you know, before we, we know that this is, this is not going to end well for this, for this guy. Um, but I think one of the things about that, you know, it being, you know, a critic, you know, is, and I don't take offense at that, but um, I think it's kind of the caricature of a critic, you know, is that, well, it, this is what a lot of people say. Critics must be the, these, you know, uh, uh, sour people and, you know, the, the people who feel better by, you know, putting other people down. And I think a lot of writers probably have been stung by a lot of reviews because you got to remember something when, you know, you said, you know, well, you're a professional critic. Yeah, but I'm also an author and an actor. So I've been on the other side of this. I've been on both sides of this whole reviewing uh, process. And as I've said to, to, to many, many people uh, when I've been asked about this is I think the where people go wrong on critics is the fact that they don't really know any of them. <laughs> and the one thing that I have found and for most of them, not all, most critics get into writing uh, criticism because they love something, not because they hate it. Why in the world? I mean, most music critics love music. Most theater critics love going to the theater. They love theater. They're disappointed when it doesn't meet the standards that, it's, that it should meet. People don't become critics because they, they hate something. They become critics because really they're passionate about it. They're really in love with it. And the criticism becomes an expression of that, that love of that. So... Um, I think that's where, you know, I think people would be very, very surprised if they ever got to know critics. But, you know, you have a whole history of entertainment of films in which critics have, are shown to be waspish, nasty, all about Eve, you know. And I think there's a real there's, there's a tendency to, to look at critics and say, you know, well, oh, those who can't do criticize. And in, in truth, criticism in itself is an art form, you know. George Bernard Shaw was a critic. He was a playwright, but he was also one of the fiercest critics on the London scene. Emil Zola was a critic, who, was, who criticized art 
and literature. And their criticism is, is, is great art. It's been collected and read in books because it's magnificent. It's like anything else. Really good criticism is illuminating. So, you know, yeah, that episode, I mean, I, I, it's, it's, it's not that I don't like it because it's, that, that character is a critic, you know, because, you know, that's only part of who I am. So I'm going to we're going to need to start wrapping this up pretty soon. Um, I did also just want to ask you, just given how famous and successful and beloved The Twilight Zone is, you would think that there would be more fantasy and science fiction anthology shows on television, but there are really very few. And I'm just wondering if you think there should be more or have any thoughts on why there aren't more? Well, the anthology show went out of a vogue because there was a network uh, belief that, um, and it was true that, that, that television is a character driven medium and that people come back to spend time with characters that they've grown in, in love with. They, they, they look forward to coming back and spending time with a family of characters. You know, is, is that if you watch the big bang theory, you want to spend time with Sheldon and Leonard in that apartment with their friends. Uh, and there is a certain amount of wisdom to that. TV is a character-driven medium, and that worked against the anthology where there were no recurring characters. Now, on The Twilight Zone, there was. Rod Serling was the recurring character. <laughs> he, you, you could look forward to seeing Rod every week and Rod introducing you to a new story. But it hurt the, enth- the network's enthusiasm for, you know, the, the, there was a, the glory time of the anthology show was really the early 60s when you had Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and that was the mystery show. You had The Outer Limits. That was the science fiction show. Thriller, at its best, that was the horror show. And The Twilight Zone, which lay claim to the greater realm of fantasy. Some weeks it was science fiction. Some weeks it was horror. Some weeks it was more fantasy aspects to it. Um, Like I said, The Twilight Zone's hard to pin down because it sort of embraced all of it. And, you know, it's, it's best, better just to say it was the Twilight Zone. Um, but that was the last kind of golden age of these anthology shows. And every once in a while, somebody has tried it. And it, once in a while, it will work in cable, like Tales from the Crypt, where it had a pretty good long run on HBO. Or maybe it'll work in syndication, like Tales from the Dark Side worked for a couple of years. But... I think, you know, the, you, what might save these anthology shows is actually that a, 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 a streaming services might be more apt to do them than anybody else because, you know, people can binge watch those. They don't have to watch on a weekly basis and come back for that family character thing. Um, I actually think the new Wild West of programming, which is streaming, opens up a lot of possibilities for this. And we could see a little bit of a revival of the anthology show. But I will say this, while you haven't seen the Twilight Zone replicated as a, um, in the sense of anthology shows, what you have seen is the influence of the Twilight Zone. And the Twilight Zone influence is a direct line. I, I, I have interviewed almost every single leading showrunner um, on all of the great cable dramas of the last 20 years. And if you ask them, you know, what writer influenced you the most, the name you are going to hear overwhelmingly is Rod Serling. David Chase said it. Matt Weiner said it. Vince Gilligan said it. All of these guys who are creating the great television of our time were most influenced by Rod Serling. He is their hero. He is their role model. And that's the real rolling thunder of what comes out of the Twilight Zone. If you want to really look at, at, at where that influence has gone, you know, yes, there's a direct rolling of it because he directly influences Star Trek, which then directly influences a whole lot of other things which come along, which it, it's a continuance. It goes right through, it goes to Night Stalker, it goes to Twin Peaks, it goes to the X-Files, it goes to Buffy, and it, you know, it just keeps coming up right up to the present day. But the real kind of profound influence is that Rod's writing, his, his, his concerns for the human condition are most reflected in the writing of the, and, and these writers, by the way, who are writing today, these are America's, this has become America's playhouse. 
This has become what the American theater was in the 1950s when writers like Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams were writing the, 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 the plays that sort of illuminated who we are and what, and, and, and what we are as a society. Cable dramas have taken over that. Mad Men. Mad Men gets to the heart of who we are as a people. Uh, Breaking Bad, The Sopranos, all of these shows are, 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 are they are the, the death of a salesman of our time. They all uh, these great novels and great, you know, uh, The Wire, David Simon's The Wire. My goodness, that's like, you know, John Steinbeck, uh, uh, you know, applied to Baltimore and applied to the levels of, of Baltimore. That's where we're seeing that kind of writing now. And a lot of it's thanks to Rod Serling and the influence of Rod Serling. And that's pretty big. <laughs> that, that's where you get to go, you know, hats off to Rod uh, for, for that. <laughs> All right. So hats off to Rod, I think, is a good note to end on. And so we've been speaking with Mark Dewitziak. And again, this new book is called Everything I Need to Know I Learned in the Twilight Zone. So, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, no, thanks for doing this. I had a great time. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Mark Dewitziak for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Cat CPS in Canada, who writes, Without exaggeration, I can honestly say this podcast has changed my life. The dialogue is expertly and professionally facilitated. The interviews are conducted spectacularly. The panels are moderated skillfully. The topics are varied and interesting. The podcast is so well done, in fact, that I have found myself captivated and enthralled by topics I would have otherwise avoided, e.g. horror. My to-read list has exploded into a lifetime of savory. I discovered The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy in October 2016. Since then, I have almost caught up with the most recent episode, have listened to all the Lightspeed podcasts, have purchased all the Destroy SF anthologies, and received a subscription to Lightspeed magazine as a gift for Christmas. So far in 2017, I have quit my job in social services, started writing again, registered to finish my degree in English and creative writing, joined a local writers group, and attended a science fiction and fantasy literary convention in Detroit. This podcast helped me accept and embrace my inner geek, so I have finally decided to lean in. Thank you. So big thanks again to Cat CPS for that amazing review and for supporting Lightspeed Magazine, and we're definitely wishing you all the best when it comes to pursuing writing. I also want to give a special thank you to Gerard Vila and Presh Desai, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.